This is the second talk in a four-part series on Paul's letter to the Romans by Terry Virgo and is entitled The Effects of Justification. This talk is based on Romans 5, 1 to 11, and has been made available to you through New Frontiers. Morning, it's good to be with you again, enjoying God's presence in the delightful worship. So grateful to the way in which, uh, for the band, the way they're leading us uh, to God so helpfully. This morning, this passage uh, introduces one of the most wonderful words for the Christian, the word justification. We are justified by faith and as a result have peace with God. This is the wonderful accomplishment of our Lord Jesus on the cross. The word justified is a, a legal word. It's borrowed, if you like, from the, the world of the courtroom. And uh, as a legal word, John Stott says justification is a legal or forensic term belonging to the law courts. It is the opposite of condemnation. Both are the pronouncements of a judge. God gives us freedom and vindication through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift. And this is the beauty and the wonder of the Christian experience, that we don't have to labor to be justified. In fact, one of the most wonderful statements Paul makes in Romans 4 and verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. It's outrageous. It's scandalous. God will justify the ungodly. To one who doesn't work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is regarded as righteousness. And so justification isn't about uh, what God has done in us. That's the work of sanctification we'll be looking at in later uh, session, uh, especially tomorrow morning. But here, justification is the gift of righteousness, not to one who has worked, not to one who has labored to accomplish, not to one who has tried hard to be religious, uh, to produce a righteousness of his own based on law, as Paul says it, but a righteousness from God, which is a gift, praise God. And this is the joy of the believer that he, as a result, has peace with God. We have peace with God. In fact, we're told in Romans 5 and 17, just outside of our passage, that through this gift of righteousness, we reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful, vivid phrase. We reign in life. We have peace with God. And uh, other phrases say we're always being led in triumph. Uh, we're more than conquerors. Uh, that's exactly how you felt this morning, wasn't it? When you woke in your tent. I see a yawn over there to affirm what I'm saying. Uh, you know, that's exactly how we feel. You know, I'm more than a conqueror, aren't I? I'm reigning in life. I'm, I'm always in joy and fulfillment. Uh, sadly, that's, that's not always our testimony. And sometimes uh, we can happen to a kind of a crisis, maybe at a conference, where we feel, Lord Jesus, I would, I would love to do better than I am. I, I would love to... Yes, reign in life. I feel maybe that, that has about it the ring of what I thought Christianity was about. It doesn't seem to be my experience, but I would long to reign in life. And sometimes that can come with quite some conviction. Maybe at a particular event, so there's preaching or something takes place and you feel a bit undone. You think, Lord, I would love to, I'd love to find much more peace with you. And uh, we live with this word condemnation. Many Christians uh, would testify, I feel often feel condemned. And uh, we live in that battle sometimes. People say, I'm very up and down in my Christian experience. Maybe there comes a crisis, maybe like at the beginning of a new year, perhaps someone's given you a new diary. And every, 
every page, every day is clean and white, and you haven't messed anything up yet. And uh, you look at that on January the 1st, and you say, Lord Jesus, I, I would ra- I really like this new year to do better than I did last. I, I devote myself freshly. I want to reign in life. I want to be a more than a conqueror. I want to be what your Bible says I should be. And sadly, very often at that very moment, we can apply principles that the verse doesn't say. And we can begin to say, right, now how can I be really much more in peace with God? How can I reign in life? And uh, very often people make like New Year's resolutions, right? I will. What will I do? Uh, I'll put my alarm clock back one hour. Uh, I'll pray longer. I'll read my whole Bible through. Um, I'll witness to one person every day. I've heard people bring all kinds of rules and regulations to their lives to see if they can't do better, have more peace with God. If only I worked harder at it is often our feeling. But actually, when we have that approach, we fall into a terrible snare and trap. And actually, we've not read the small print, which says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, they're the ones who reign in life. It's not so much about performance as about your position in Christ. I am justified freely as a gift. The free gift of righteousness means I reign in life. Not my endeavor, not how well I had my quiet time this morning, not how many verses I read or remembered, or any of those things that sometimes we feel can accumulate godliness and somehow maybe earn points with God. I get a few brownie points. I I did some more. Have I got peace with you now, Lord? Can I get rid of the condemnation now? And we've really missed the point because the Bible says this, justified freely as a gift we have peace with God it's not through your endeavor that we have peace with God it is therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God being justified this morning I woke up justified this morning I woke up Jesus Christ was my righteousness again this morning John Bunyan tells the story or at least told the story of uh, one day he was feeling very depressed and walking and feeling low, and uh, he saw a vision, he testifies. John Piper refers to it in one of his more recent books, that he saw a vision, and he saw Christ as his righteousness. And he said, I suddenly realized that it didn't depend on my frame. That's that old English word. It's in one of those old hymns, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. It's my frame of mind. He said, I realized it's not dependent on my frame, whether I feel up or down. And if I feel high, I can't improve on his righteousness. And if I feel down, I can't take away from his righteousness. But actually, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And every day I wake up, Jesus is my righteousness again. I'm not trying to accumulate some worth before God, but being justified by faith again this morning. I woke up having peace with God. Hallelujah. I'm reconciled and I am righteous in his sight, thoroughly acceptable, delighted in, because I am in Christ. Now, it's very important for us to know that many Christians, even zealous Christians, can struggle with that whole experience. I know for myself, I've probably been a Christian for some 16 years, I would say. That's going through Bible college and being a pastor for some years before I would say it's like I suddenly saw the grace of God. I suddenly understood, no, he loves me freely. And my whole Christian life, just I felt surged into a new place of security and peace. Peace with God. 
this wonderful shalom, this sense of the Lord lifting up his face and shining on us. It's a free gift that God has given. It was something prepared for in the Old Testament when they brought their lambs. And the lamb, you remember, had to be perfect, had to be without disease or any broken limbs. And, and when people came to the priests, they didn't come thinking, I do hope he doesn't notice that um, I've all uh, a torn tunic and I've got the mud on my uh, tunic. No, no. As they came, they're, what, they're saying the priest is looking at the lamb. And the lamb has to be not blind, not diseased, no broken limbs. So I'm not thinking, what will he see in me? I'm thinking, what will he see in my lamb? As he looks at the lamb, the thing he would say as he inspected the lamb, as he gave it back, would be this. I find no fault in him. All eyes are on the lamb. I'm not wondering, will he like what I look? What is he seeing in my lamb? And if he says, no, no fault, I'm okay. And the righteousness of Jesus is accredited to my account. He is my righteousness this morning. Jesus Christ is made to us righteousness and so we're justified before God it's the wonderful heart of our evangelical faith we have peace with God and we're not to battle with feelings of condemnation we'll see in our final session about the law and how sometimes the devil gets behind that with accusation he's called the accuser of the brothers and he accuses us day and night it says in the book of revelation in other words that's perhaps his most a used weapon. I'm sure the devil has many weapons, but he is particularly the accuser of the brethren and the sisters. And if he can get your head down by saying, you're no good, you're no good. And if you get into that snare of saying, well, I'll try a bit harder then. I'll pray a bit longer then. I'll read the Bible a bit more then. Maybe then I won't feel so bad. You've made a, a big mistake. You have tried to answer condemnation with sanctification and it doesn't work. The only answer to condemnation is justification. If God says not guilty, who can argue with God? God says there is no condemnation. A friend of mine said that when he first saw that with real weight in Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He underlined the verse so much it went right through to the maps. <laughs> He's so excited. No condemnation. And it's a wonder to know it. It's a joy to know about God's lavish grace that he sets us free totally. And so God has brought us into peace with himself through justification, not through sanctification. That's not to say sanctification is unimportant. We'll see that. But our standing, our peace, our joy, our rest, our security is through justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus through whom we've obtained our access or some translations say our introduction into this grace in which we stand we as it were needed someone to help us gain access we needed someone to give us an introduction we were shut out especially we who are far off Gentiles, as it speaks about in Ephesians, we're far off and God brings us near. We have in Ephesians, it speaks about access to the Father uh, in Ephesians and chapter 2. Here, it speaks about access into this grace, this sphere of grace in which we now stand, this wonderful place 
in the favour and mercy and blessing of God. We, we've gained entrance. We, we were shut out. I remember once I was preaching in a church just outside Washington, D.C., and there was a big congregation, and uh, I was asked by one of the pastors of the church, would you like a, a view of the White House this afternoon? I said, would I? That would be amazing. And he said, well, we'll, we'll arrange that for you. We'll have someone who can get you into the White House. And so my wife and I went to uh, the White House and we arrived, we stood outside, we looked up at it, we saw the uh, iron gates, we saw the big policeman with a massive gun on his hip and uh, uh, we walked towards the gate and this guy walked towards us and said, where do you think you're going? And, uh, you know, as a stupid Englishman, I said, well, um, uh, we think we're going in to the White House. (laughs) And he said, oh, yes, and how are you going to do that? I said, well, have have a friend. And uh, he said, uh, and who's that? And I said, um, I hadn't met him. I, said, I think his name's John. No, he, he, he was deeply impressed with this, as you can imagine, and just stood there looking at this stupid Englishman. And then happily, at that very moment, the guy came uh, in the taxi, ran up and uh, took out of his uh, pocket a certain code thing, obviously, and uh, the guy went into a little shed thing there, a little cabin, obviously checked, came out, and the gate, swung open and we went into the White House. In fact, we had the better than VIP tour. I actually went to the Oval Office, stood at the door of the Oval Office, went into the Cabinet Office, went to the door. It was when Reagan was uh, president and we stood and we asked questions about what was on his desk. And uh, you may have remembered about uh, uh, the famous President Truman who said, the buck stops here. And uh, he had a, uh, a horse on his desk, uh, bucking up. And uh, Reagan had this statement, the buckaroo stops here. And, uh, you know, we, we, got, <laughs> we got access. We had someone who gave us an introduction. And Paul is saying here, through him we have gained our introduction, as it's translated in the NASB, and Leon Morris says that's a better translation, access, same idea, you're, you're getting into where you couldn't get. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we've gained access into this realm or sphere of grace, in contrast to the realm of law, which we'll look at on another morning. We have been brought in, and uh, we are also standing firmly there. It's not something we periodically just visit. My experience, of course, to the White House was a fleeting one, memorable, but nevertheless fleeting. It was just to be brought in. If you can imagine maybe some maybe unknown girl uh, looking through the gate of Buckingham Palace one day, and then maybe a year later, Prince William saying, uh, the very girl that was just looking through the gates one day, he says to his mother or his father, uh, this is the one that I've, I've chosen. I bring her right on in. That's what we're talking about, being brought right into the presence of God. And we stand, this grace in which we stand. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says you stand in grace. You don't slink into it. You don't creep into it. You don't crawl into it. Christ justifies us and we walk into this grace and stand. There should be a certain boldness about the believer. There's a humility, yes. But we're not constantly displaying humility by questioning whether we're acceptable or not. That is not glorifying to God. That is not, as the passage goes on to say, boasting in God. And we need to be careful in the the name of humility that we're not taking away from the wonder of this certainty that we stand in his grace. Some years ago, I was meditating on the story of uh, Jacob as he approached blind father Isaac 
clothed in his older brother's clothing. You remember the story, I'm sure. Isaac had a son in whom he delighted. His name was Esau. He could see no wrong in Esau. He loved Esau. And one day Jacob hid himself in the clothing or in, if you like, in Esau. He hid himself in the son that the father loved. And drew near to his father with skins on his arms and the clothes uh, on his back. And he's hoping against hope that the father won't recognize that this is not truly his delightful son. And I felt God whisper in my heart, it's not like that for you. That when you come hidden in my beloved son, in whom I delight, you're not about to be discovered as I'm sure Jacob feared he might be, one that he might say, oh, wait a minute, what are you doing in there? No, no, I am in Christ by the will of God. I am hidden in the Son in whom the Father totally delights. And as Jacob hid himself in the Son in whom the Father delighted, he received all the blessings. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, we are accepted in the Beloved, and in him we receive all all spiritual blessings. Amen. Not because we deserve them. Sometimes we're coming to God and say, oh Lord, I'm so unworthy. I... No, I've ever since then, I've often prayed in my prayer, say, Lord, here I come. I felt God said to me, as I catch the fragrance, as it happened with Isaac, he, he caught the fragrance. Mm, that's my son I love. Yes. I felt God said to me, don't be fearful that you'll be discovered. No, as I catch the fragrance of the son I love, my beloved Jesus I accept you in him. I will bless you for his sake. You're not tricking me. I've ordained it for you. I am in the son that God delights. And I'm not trying to establish a righteousness of my own to get answers to prayer. To get blessings of the spirit. To get blessings of gifts from God. I'm not trying to say, Lord, am I I not yet impressive enough to get something from you? No, no. I'm hidden in the one who's already impressed him. If you like, I'm not trying to impress God. I've found someone who's already done it for me. That's what grace teaches me. Now we're moving to another page tomorrow in Romans 6. But here in Romans 5, what I'm being told is this. You are accepted. You are justified. You stand in grace. Is that how it is for you? It's quite a step if you've never made it. It's quite an important revelation if you've never seen the grace of God. For many Christians, sadly, and often zealous Christians, as I would have said I was, I always felt I could do more. I may have prayed for an hour, but as I got off my knees, it's like Satan said, and you could have prayed longer. And you could have got more out of that. And we're striving for more instead of entering into this wonderful acceptance. Justified, peace, introduction into, yeah, this grace. We stand in grace. Doesn't change tomorrow when I wake up tomorrow. I'm still standing in grace. Are you enjoying that for yourself yet? If not, I want to urge you. Say, Lord Jesus, please show me more of what it means to stand in this grace. Our introduction to this grace in which we stand. Third heading, we boast in our hope of the glory of God. The text in the NIV says we rejoice. The commentators say it's more than just being happy. It's got a a sense of boasting in it. The Bible, uh, particularly the Apostle Paul, loves the word boast. We boast in our hope of the glory of God. It has a sense of congratulation, exaltation. It's not just, oh, I'm pretty happy about this. It's something you just get very excited about. 
Sometimes Christians are dismissed by a thinking world as happy clappies, as though we're just kind of mindless people. The more we meditate on truth, the more our hearts should explode in joy. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. The Apostle Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that's coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a glory that awaits us. We are presently saved, justified. We are, according to Romans 8, indeed glorified, but we have not yet received our glorified bodies. That's the part of salvation that is still future. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We get a new body. Once you get over 21, you start looking forward to the new body uh, that God will one day give us. Um, But we look forward to that. Jesus said in John 17, I pray that those who you've given me will be with me to behold my glory. That's the prospect of the believer, that we are going to not only see his glory, but ourselves be glorified. One Thess- or 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes, Jesus comes, to be glorified in his saints on that day and marveled at among all who believe. There's a glory that awaits us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's not entered into the heart of a man what God has stored up for those who love him. There is a future glory for us. And we boast in that. We are secure in that. There's sometimes uh, in the, the speaking of faith, a boast. David sounded quite boastful when he went out against Goliath. He was confident in God. And God wants us to have that holy boldness. 1 John 3, 2 reminds us of the now and the not yet when it says, Beloved, even now we are the sons of God, but it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. There is a future salvation that is totally glorious. And Paul says, now through his mercy, his justification, we stand in this grace and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, you know very well, I'm sure, that the word hope, as often in the English way of using the word, is a kind of hope so, maybe. But in the Bible, the word hope is expressing certainty and confidence. It's certainly going to happen. It's just future, that's all. And so here we see something that is thrilling our hearts. God wants us to boast in that. I want to encourage you to do that. As you sing, maybe in your quiet time, why don't you make it a noisy time? And sing some of these great songs we've sung before the throne of God. And, and these great majestic truths. I cannot be removed. No tongue can bid me thence depart. My name's written on his hands. My name's written on his heart. I'm there. I'm safe. I'm secure forever. We need to allow these things to transport us into a place of serious joy and delight in God. Hallelujah. So we boast in our hope of God. Then this strange and sudden uh, twist in the story, we also boast in tribulations. Now notice this, it doesn't say that we stoically endure uh, suffering. I was reading a book recently about early Christian uh, experience and some writer said, well, there was no, having uh, stepped out from the law, uh, the Christians were looking for a new way of living and they stumbled on the Stoic philosophy and that was embraced by early Christians. And I want to scream, no, no, no. 
Uh, Stoicism was a very applauded philosophy of just enduring. Uh, The British stiff upper lip, you just press through, you stoically endure. Uh, But Paul isn't talking about stoically enduring, he's talking about rejoicing in suffering. It's a strange and wonderful truth. He doesn't say we do it stoically. He doesn't say we boast in spite of suffering. It's not in spite of suffering. It's in the suffering. We are boasting in the midst of it. Reminded perhaps of Jesus' words in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when all men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice, be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. There's a celebration in the event. We're going to see in a moment that it turns on a word knowing. We'll come to that in a moment. But Jesus is saying rejoice in the event while it's happening. Celebrate it. And we're told that's what happened to the early Christians when they were beaten. You remember in early Acts, uh, they were beaten and released. And the testimony is this. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for his name extraordinary thing they didn't write in their prayer letter we've been through a terrible time please pray for us they said hallelujah what a privilege to suffer when i was at london bible college years ago a man called richard wormbrandt was set free from a prison in romania where he'd served he'd been a pastor you may have heard his name and uh, gilbert kirby who was our principal at that time managed to get him and bring him from the airport virtually it was his first appointment was to come and speak to the young students at Bible College. And to be honest, when it was announced, very short notice, we have got Richard Wormbrandt. He's had 14 years imprisonment. And that's before we knew about the whole Chinese thing. Um, And uh, he he is here, and he will speak at a lunchtime meeting, uh, specially put on. And I must say, I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm ready for this. This will be very hard to bear. And I prayed a lot about it, and I thought, right, let's go. I want to be exposed to all that this man went through. And uh, we packed into one of the halls at Bible College, and uh, this dear man had us rocking with laughter for about an hour and a quarter. It was amazing. His head was all shaved, just a stubble of hair beginning to grow. He looked gaunt and thin, and, but he, was, he just had us rocking with laughter, and he told us at one point where he was in solitary confinement, and daily there'd just be that knock, or I think it was the food was slid under the door or through some hole or something, and, and uh, they just looked in to see how it was, and he was enduring, he said, and he, he used to sit and meditate, and he said he was reminded of this verse about when you're suffering for Jesus' sake, and then it goes on, rejoice and be glad, and leap for joy, and I think it's in the Luke account, and he thought, hmm, I've not done the leaping for joy. And he told this story. And uh, uh, then he said, so I, I said, thank you, Lord. I started jumping around. And the food was disgusting and revolting and hardly anything to it. And he's leaping around. And the next day, they looked through the door and said, oh, he's obviously going mad. And, he said, and so they gave him some better food after that. And he said, <laughs> he, he noticed the next phrase said, great will be your reward. He thought, oh. <laughs> so he was very pleased with that. And, but he was... This is the triumph of, of the church of God. It must have been done through the running centuries that people have not stoically endured, just gritted their teeth, just proven their, their own strength. No, there is a celebration beyond because of the hope of glory, because of our identification with Christ. 
we boast even in the midst of suffering. We had a similar experience when there was a big conference in the Brighton uh, Conference Center and um, there were some uh, Chinese Christians who had come and uh, they'd smuggled out a pastor who again had been in imprisonment uh, in China. And uh, I mean, his suffering was w- dreadful. And yet he, he, he stole the whole program really, just told his story of how he wanted to worship but there was no place of quiet. And uh, he managed to get himself the job of going and working in the excrement of the whole camp. And every day he would wade, he said, waist deep into the excrement of the camp of all these hundreds and hundreds of people in the prison. And he would be turning, shoveling, working in order that ultimately this would be used as manure. And he said the stench was such that no one would come anywhere near him. And he said, there I could be with Jesus. And his face lit up. You're looking at this. And then he said, and as I was there, I would sing. And there's, I don't know, about three or 4,000 at the Brighton Centre. And looking on in amazement. And he just broke into song. And he started singing this old hymn, which you may not even remember. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there. None other has ever known. He thought, what? (laughs) And he's describing a joy that's totally incomprehensible. And one of the verses of that ancient hymn has in it, there's still the dew on the roses. You think, not exactly what he's in the midst of. (laughs) But there is a supernatural boasting in pressure. And I know as uh, young students and passionate about evangelism some of us will begin to go and go and go who knows what's ahead who knows what kinds of battles await who knows what kind of missionary context you'll find yourself in and it won't be all fun and there will be loneliness and intense difficulty and setbacks and hostility who knows how's the how is the islamic world going to be taken who knows the price that will have to be paid And this secret must be learned by our generation that says we know how to boast in the midst of pressure. Being deeply persuaded, my life is hidden with Christ and God. He accepts me. And these Chinese Christians have learned such deep things with God. Without the benefits of all the uh, books and resources that we find so helpful. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, I will rather glory in infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. Somehow he celebrates it. Now, it's not masochism. It's not hit me again. There's a sense, no, this is is where the cutting edge of the kingdom lies. I am at the cutting edge. I'm suffering. I'm sharing some of the sufferings of Christ. I celebrate. I boast in it. And we must rediscover That kind of Christianity that's not merely theoretical, but is learned where there's a lot of pain. Though there's pain in the offering, as we sang earlier from Matt Redmond's song. Blessed be your name. You give, you take away. Blessed be your name. We've got to learn that and live in the good of that. Now Paul says this, we suffer knowing. Now there's a key word, knowing, okay? It's important for us to see that it's not escapism, it's not foolishness. Paul says, we boast or rejoice knowing 
What does it say? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, which produces character and hope. Knowing that, knowing that setbacks, delays, power, uh, pressure, they produce, knowing this is producing something in me. It's knowing what the end will be. It's not a mystery. Why is all this happening? There are certain things we know. It's because we know them, we can press through. James makes a very similar point in James 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's because we know that this is not wasted time. We know God's doing something in us. We celebrated a few moments ago that justification happens in a moment. To him who's ungodly but believes his faith is regarded as righteousness. We can come into a tent unsaved. We can walk out righteous before God. We've not changed yet. Justification doesn't change us. It changes God's attitude to us. We're accepted. But now a process will take place in our lives to conform us to the image of his son. God has a wonderful son, Jesus, and he wants to bring many sons to glory. He wants to transform us into his image. And one of the ways in which he changes us is through pressure, setback, pain, disappointment, where perseverance is required. Well, we don't say it rains first night at Forum. Oh, forget it. Let's go home. No, persevere. And we persevere through pressure. And it's producing some character in us. You know, I'm a father of five, and you're longing, you watch your, your children grow, you're longing to see character. You're longing to see, yes, yeah, stickability. Don't throw in the towel. Yeah, but press through this. God's going to do that in us. He did that in his son, manifestly at the cross, where he endured to the end. Hallelujah. Now, we're called to run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So God wants to produce character. He'll justify us in a moment. But he wants to produce character. And often it comes through trials and setbacks where character is produced. He says it produces character, produces, sorry, perseverance, character, and then hope. It's interesting that the whole little section here starts with hope. We hope for the glory of God. And then it says we go through all these pressures and this produces hope. It produces hope at another level now. It's hope that's been tested and tried and still there. We've still got the hope, even though things fell through. Even though that relationship fell apart. Even though that job didn't open up. Although things that go against us, we're not going to abandon our hope. We keep pressing through. That's how God builds character in us. And it says in verse 5, hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope will not disappoint us. The commentators say it will not put us to shame, rather reflecting the old Psalms, which often say, he who trusts in the Lord will never be put to shame. In the end, it won't be found, ah, it didn't really work. And the psalmist is repeatedly saying, I thank God the believer will never be put to shame. And that's the feel of this verse. Hope will not put us to shame. It won't disappoint us in the end. And God's given us a foretaste. God's given us uh, a preliminary amount of certainty through the Holy Spirit, or at least the love of God, poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's given us a guarantee, as it speaks of, in, 
Ephesians. In fact, in the, the book of Romans, this is the first reference to the work of the Holy Spirit, which he'll open up much more in Romans chapter 8. But he talks about the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And certainly that's what men like Richard Wormbrandt, the Chinese pastor, were talking about. As this man said, I danced in the, in the cell. And the other man, uh, just in that foul place, saying, oh, the presence of God, the love of God, the joy we shared as we tarried there. This guy's not talking about principle. He's talking about experience. He's saying that the joy we shared, no one else, no other will ever know. It's hard for you to even penetrate what I experienced in my heart. John Stott says, under the vivid metaphor of a cloudburst on a parched countryside, what the Holy Spirit does is make us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. It's God's love, it's not our love for God. Nearly all the interpreters or commentators will make that point. God's love, the love of God, yes, it's God's love. God's magnificent ocean of love is poured out in our hearts. Douglas Moo, in his great uh, recent commentary, says, the verb pour out connotes an abundant, extravagant effusion. I hope you're enjoying that. An abundant, extravagant effusion. God's love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is not a mental thing. This is not just saying, oh, I see it says that in the Bible. This is felt experience. This is God's love poured out. And uh, I recommend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' books on Romans 8 and um, those whole areas, talking about the experience of the love of God so well uh, demonstrated through church history as Dr. Lloyd-Jones shows again and again. People who have been overwhelmed with the love of God, that's our experience. That's our joy. If we are not enjoying his love, we are not entering into, entering into the fullness of this passage. It's so important for us. Gosh, our time. Whew. Okay, headlines from now on. Okay. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. Sorry. Number six in your list, the outward demonstration of God's love. Right, so there's the inward confirmation, this extravagant outpouring that makes you sometimes rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's Peter's experience. That's what he said. That's what we have. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. But also, there's the outward and uh, historic demonstrations of God's love. While we were still helpless, sinners and enemies, verses 6, 8, and 10, God demonstrated his love for us. We've been covering that sort of ground earlier in our session. I won't stay there, though it's so magnificent. God's love demonstrated in the cross of our Lord Jesus. We'll press on quickly then. And then seventh, also, our future salvation. Verses 9 and 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul is arguing that if we've been justified already, having been sinners and enemies and helpless, how much more now shall we be ultimately saved? Salvation has uh, three tenses to it, really. Saved in the past, saved 
in the present, saved ultimately in the future from the wrath to come. The Bible's uh, emphasis throughout, really, is that future salvation, the ultimate salvation from wrath and hell. And Paul is saying, if we now know, having been enemies, God's justification of us, how much more shall we be saved through his life? NASB and AV say saved by his life. NIV says saved through his life. The actual word is in. (laughs) Translated by, through. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says before we were outside of his life. Outside of his love as it were. Enemies. Now we are in the life of Christ. And therefore our position is absolutely certain and secure. Having been saved we shall be saved in his life in him our life is hid with christ in god so finally we boast in god again if i can quote john stott he says we should be the most positive people in the world for the new community of jesus christ is characterized not by self-centered triumphalism but by god-centered worship through christ jesus through whom we have received the reconciliation We are justified freely as a gift. It happens in a moment when you believe. But life will take you through all kinds of pressures. And it's for us to keep rejoicing and celebrating the certainties that we know that God is forming character in me. Maybe you've gone through a tough patch. Maybe you go back to college rather daunted by some of the pain or some of the uncertainties. God wants you to know he's forming character in you. He doesn't want you to stoically endure He wants you to get alone with him, like the guy in the Chinese prison, until, yeah, he is shedding such joy abroad in my heart by the Spirit. But I'm more than a conqueror through his love. I'm not just putting up with it like a good Christian ought to. That is not the victory that's being spoken about here. There is a better place to be. There's a better place to be, where we find him to be our all in all and sufficient for us. And let him do the character formation in our lives. This concludes the second of this four-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.